very good morning to you. This is Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. The EU imposes sanctions on Ukraine. The country moves closer to the brink and emerging markets remain on edge. In business news, HP beats estimates on profit and revenue. And the slew of recent mergers lifts the mood in global markets. A little food for thought this morning. The population here in Kiev is, is in a state of shock. Um, we've never experienced such a level of violence in, in the last 23 years. Um, and uh, there has been uh, definitely uh, some very chaotic scenes. Um, I also have to say that that violent, uh, actually violence went uh, both ways, that, uh, that the population is replying with also uh, live ammunition. So, yeah, the situation is definitely uh, best described as chaotic. As Peter Bobrinsky, he's the managing director of Dragon Capital, an investor who is actually based in Kiev. Meantime, the CEO of Marriott Hotels has a hotel in Kiev that has yet to open. Kiev is a beautiful city and a great destination and a market we're really excited about getting in. Uh, but again, we're, we're glad we're not open today. EU foreign ministers have agreed to impose sanctions on Ukrainian officials who are responsible for violence and excessive force. In a statement, these foreign ministers said targeted sanctions, including asset freezes and visa bans, would be introduced. So we get more now from another investor who is often invested in uh, Ukraine, Hans Humes from Greylock Capital. He says this is not civil war. Says this is really a population that's rising up against what's basically a kleptocracy, the corruption of the country. So we're, we're seeing an EU uh, versus Russia, but at some level on the ground, it's the population trying to push out a corrupt regime. And we get no, more now from uh, Mr. Humes. He says that he may be looking to invest shortly. The, the debt to GDP is only, you know, it's 40 percent. So it's not an overwhelming debt. There's some big maturities coming up. And, you know, yesterday we saw a big capitulation sell off in the midst of the violence today. We've actually seen a bounce back in bond prices. So on the short end, June maturities are seeing about a 30 percent yield. Um, if unless you see the country completely coming apart at the seams, which would be civil war, it's not a bad time to step in. All right, so that's Hans Humes from Greylock Capital, and we'll get you an update on markets uh, in Asia in just a moment. One of the big um, moves yesterday was the Facebook acquisition of WhatsApp. It was the fourth major deal this year. Comcast bought Time Warner Cable for $45 billion. Activists moved to acquire Forest Labs for $21 billion, and Suntory shelled out $16 billion for, for Beam. And, of course, uh, Facebook uh, moved on WhatsApp to uh, up to 19 billion dollars. And uh, so we'll be looking at that a little bit later about whether or not mergers and acquisition activity is uh, helping spark markets. Our guests this morning include Graham Bibby from Richmond Asset Management. Sue Trin from RBC Capital Markets will also be along with us. Sue will talk about the outlook for the Japanese yen and other currencies. It's been a wild ride for Tokyo stocks, for instance, this week. And we'll also have Danny Hicks coming later from AFP on the business of sport. In Kiev, uh, it was the bloodiest day of clashes yet. At least 21 anti-government protesters died. Some officials said that there may have been as many as 70 killed. Protesters also captured 67 police. From an investment standpoint, though, we heard there from Hans Humes. He said that the economic profile is not all that bad.
On Wall Street, stocks were higher, lifted by better manufacturing data, as well as earnings and M&A. The S&P 500 up 0.6% at 1839. The Dow Jones Industrial Average increasing 92 points to 16,133. And the Nasdaq was up 0.7%. Let's go back to Arnie Sorensen, the Marriott CEO. He's fairly optimistic about business. Our watchword, I think, is sort of steady as as she goes for the moment. Uh, we have seen the last three and a half years really modest but steady economic growth in the United States. And even at times when market sentiment seemed to be quite anxious or we were dealing with uh, government shutdown threats and the like, yeah. fairly steady sort of mid-single digit same-store sales growth. He says he's taking a real, realistic approach and that he's not a Pollyanna. And while there's a little bit more optimism now about 14 than there was a year ago about 13, I'm not sure the evidence necessarily proves it out yet. Uh, And so we sort of build our expectations for 14 being like 13, uh, 2%-ish GDP growth, not 3 and above. Uh, But that's that's a year we're happy to take. All right, so uh, that is uh, comments there from Arnie uh, Sorensen. He's the chief executive officer of the Marriott Group. And um, we'll take a look at some of the economic data that was moving markets today. The Market Economics Preliminary Index of U.S. Manufacturing increased to 56.7 in February, surpassing economists' estimates. And as we look at Asian markets now in Australia, the ASX 200 up 38 points at 54.59. In Seoul, the Kospi up 16 points at 1947. We don't um, have um, a cash market in Japan, but we do have the futures there as traded earlier um, in Chicago. Japanese futures up 120 points at 14,540. The dollar yen, 102.45. So that's the dollar uh, pretty sharply higher against the yen. The euro, 1.3717 US dollars. We welcome now Sue Trin, senior currency strategist at RBC Capital Markets to this program. Sue, good morning. Well, um, if I could just get maybe a comment from you overall, uh, there's a lot of uh, angst with uh, what's happening in in Ukraine, in Thailand. Uh, There's a fair bit of unrest through emerging markets all around the world. Yet in the developed markets, um, you know, major indices have have been fairly strong here of late after a minor correction. What's your overall view of the currency market at the moment? fairly choppy at the moment. Um, The market at the moment is still trying to um, ascertain um, exactly how much uh, of the soft patch of US uh, economic data has been driven by the harsh weather conditions. Um, And I think it's fair to say that over the past two weeks we have had um, several data disappointments and uh, we can't fully blame the weather uh, for the extent of the um, soft data. So that's actually seeing the US dollar softening right across the board for now. However, um, we think that speculation that the recent softer economic data will um, likely derail the Federal Reserve's cruise control in terms of its tapering pipeline. Um, We think that that speculation is a little bit premature. Uh, We are anticipating that the Federal Reserve will stick to its guns and uh, taper by 10 billion uh, US dollars per meeting uh, to wind up QE by the end of this year. Does Um, Does that mean that you think that Fed officials are just somehow clueless they're not seeing the weaker data or or do you think that it's that they have a lot of confidence that it's mainly the weather and that the economy will strengthen um, I mean, the key is is that um, you know one month 
worth of data does not a trend make. And if you look at... Well, it's two months. Trends, it's, it's been two months now, December and January. Longer-term trend of the economic data, um, we are still very much at... Um, reasonably average levels, labour market data, for instance, if you take three months rolling average, um, six months rolling average, um, it's all reasonably consistent with a um, steadily recovering employment uh, situation in the US. So uh, I think it's a little bit premature to uh, get a little bit uh, too anxious about um, the recent data flow. And what about the softer GDP data in Japan? Um, the GDP data was uh, Q4, so it was, while it was broad-based weakness, I think most will uh, agree that uh, most of the more timely indicators of activity in Japan um, have actually shown a, a little bit more of a recovery in the early part of 2014, and certainly as demand is uh, front-loaded ahead of the sales tax hike, um, activity is likely to recover in the first quarter. It seems like we're just uh, making excuses and apologies for uh, what has been fairly weak data. I mean, stock markets are a lot higher, and it seems like investors uh, just don't believe some of this weaker data. Um, you know, you haven't convinced me yet that, um, you know, this is just so temporary. Um, well, again, time will tell, uh, really. We need to see a string of softer data runs before, um, as I said, it will derail the Federal Reserve's uh, planned timeline as far as tapering is concerned. Um, you know, you make a fair point. Uh, the Federal Reserve is uh, very data-dependent in terms of its policy, but, um, again, we're taking a more optimistic view that um, this is just a soft patch and um, we will see a little bit of a bounce back in ensuing months. So does that optimistic view mean that you see a weaker yen going forward and a stronger Japanese equity market? The, the key is really timing as far as Japanese yen is concerned. Um, in the very short term, uh, we are still seeing that capital flows are very um, much uh, highlighting that uh, flow is still kept flowing into Japan rather than out of Japan. Uh, most of the uh, short yen positioning in the market is uh, speculative um, by nature and accordingly uh, very vulnerable to um, any uh, spikes in terms of risk aversion. And we've seen um, uh, examples of that over the last uh, several weeks uh, where we've had periods where risk aversion has spiked up and risk sentiment has taken a dive and that's pushed uh, dollar yen lower. Um, ultimately, um, dollar yen will be driven by uh, US rate dynamics and um, from that perspective, we will see a uh, moderate trend uh, upwards um, towards the end of this year and then uh, more meaningfully throughout 2015 when the Federal Reserve actually starts to look at uh, conventional monetary tightening. Okay, so when you say rate dynamics, just for the general listener that uh, is tuned into this program, um, does that mean that uh, you see higher interest rates in the U.S. sooner than you do in Japan? Therefore, in terms of the currency, the dollar should rise against the Japanese yen just because of the yield differential, and that's why you would see the yen lower and the dollar higher? be more manifest in 2015 as we expect the Federal Reserve to begin its uh, tightening interest rates or increasing interest rates by the middle of the year. The middle of next year? 2015, yes. Whoa, okay. All right, uh, Sue, thanks very much. Sorry, uh, you're a little technical uh, for our general audience, but um, that's fine. We, uh, we love to have you in the program. Thank you. Sue Trin, Senior Currency Strategist at RBC Capital Markets. So many guests of late, you know, with so much of this jargon, it's difficult to understand. My head spins. I'm just lucky that it, you know, when it stops spinning, it, it's still facing the mic. Um, let's say good morning to Graham Bibby. 
Chief Executive of Richmond Asset Management. Good morning, Graham. Good morning. So what I've been trying to do here of late, um, I've been trying to uh, master my mind a little bit so that I can um, master my money. And yeah. um, I think I'm getting there. And so we brought you on to help us move a little down that road. How are you this morning? I'm very good. Very, very good. Yeah. And you like all this... Uh, you like all this uh, bullish action in markets? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the, I'm the original trend is your friend, man. Um, in January, the markets were all turning a bit negative, and I, actually I raised a lot of cash. Uh, but then it seems on a dime, the negative sentiment changed, and we reversed at the upside and broke above support levels. So we went immediately back fully invested. You know, something that's been happening of late uh, has made me rather positive, um, you know, notwithstanding my uh, seemingly negative tone with um, uh, with Sue a few minutes ago. But um, and that is uh, a lot of M&A activity. And even if you look inside this mergers and acquisition activity, you're seeing something kind of interesting happening, which is even the acquirers are going up. It means that stock investors are rewarding CEOs that are putting money to work and that if you are sitting on a massive cash pile, you're probably getting punished on a relative basis. Yeah, well, it comes back to market psychology, what's driving the market. And at the moment, as you just said, you know, if you're not putting your money to work, well, what's happening? Uh, <laughs> your money's on deposit and, you know, in effect, you've got a guarantee and the guarantee is you're losing money because inflation is creeping up. What you normally spend money on is, is creeping up. So, People need to put uh, money to work, and that's individuals as well as institutions. Well, as you said, though, things can move pretty quickly. So you raised a lot of cash in January in the correction, and then the markets turned around and started charging up. Were you able to deploy fast enough to take advantage of it? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, You know, my peg ratio, which is P, the growth ratio uh, analysis, especially in the U.S., which is where I'm focusing, so I have so many stocks. I've never had as many stocks on my watch list, uh, an undervalued um, with strong earnings forecast um, criteria. So, so let's know, let's just take a second. Good. Let's take a second. And explain this peg thing, which is PE to right. growth. So, if you have a company yeah. with a PE of of twenty, that seems a little high. But if it's growing at more than twenty percent, then it's not yeah. so high. Yeah. Well, again, when I was writing my book, Master Your Mind, Master Your Money. I had to distill things down to a basic level. Why would a stock rise? Well, a stock normally would rise, I said normally, not always, because of the underlying you know, prospects of that company, which um, the analysts that cover that company have a forward consensus earnings. So that might mean 20 companies are covering that company, 20 research analysts, and if 16 of them say, as you just rightly said, the earnings grows 30% per annum uh, and the PE is 20 that means that it's, it's P ratio that it discounts to the, the earnings growth, where the S&P's forward earnings growth is 10% per annum, and the PE is 16, so it's a 60% premium. I've got stocks that have got forward earnings growth in the region of 30 to 40%, but their PE ratios are 7, <laughs> so they're at a huge discount. But at the end of the day, as you know, I just follow that trend. So if the trend turns negative, for whatever reason, I'll be out turns positive. I've got about 200 stocks in my watch list. Um, but it's interesting. A lot, a lot of different areas look quite positive at the moment, even outside the peg ratios, including Asia. And I think I was the only guy at the beginning of uh, January to call the, uh, the new uptrend in gold and silver.
Okay, so you've been uh, you've been sticking with gold and silver. Gold is now thirteen hundred seventeen dollars uh, an ounce. It's come up from about eleven eighty uh, about the beginning of January. Um, what gave you the signal that gold would be good this year as opposed to the past two years? Well. <laughs> As you know, I talk at a lot of seminars, and for the last two years, one of the greatest questions I've had is, oh, what about gold and silver? And I said, well, you shouldn't be holding gold and silver because basically they're in a downtrend. What about money printing, blah, blah, blah? So it doesn't matter. It should be going up because money printing should be inflationary, but actually the trend was down. And then in January, the, both those markets broke out to the upside on the physical but the, under, the most undervalued aspect of gold and silver is the stock play because they've got beaten up around 80%. So it's quite ironic because we've got tapering coming in, which should be there's less money being printed, uh, which should be less conducive to gold and silver going up. But they're actually starting to go up and it's just gaining momentum. So uh, I just follow that trend and the stocks are seriously undervalued. Some stocks went down. 80 to 90% over a 15-month period. Yeah, so you would be buying the uh, stocks rather than the precious metal itself? Yeah, I mean, for your listeners, you know, um, they probably get into ETFs a bit more and GLD, which is the favoured gold trust. I mean, that's, you know, it, it broke above 120, and then there was another resistance at 125. It's gone above that. Um, but silver is outperforming gold as it normally does in these, in these upward trends. So SLV, which is the silver ETF, is outperforming. But I think I mentioned last time I was on your program, uh, possibly silver standard um, resource stock, which is a silver stock. That actually started turning up in December. I think around that time it was somewhere like 550. It's ten. It's over ten at the moment. So, you know, it's a huge upside. But there's lots of sectors that I like. You know, uh, everything from uh, airlines to Facebook. Uh, you know, there's so many positive trends there, uh, and I do believe, con- quite contrarian, that Asia is also bottom- bottomed out. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Facebook buying WhatsApp. I know you're not a fundamental guy. This isn't really a stock picker's program. I just want to try to talk a little bit about yeah. things like, you know, inflation and, and uh, conditions of business and how strong the economies are. It gets yeah. shown in the markets. The markets, you know, are a great barometer for what's happening in business. Yeah. Uh, um, so, you know, I mean, a move like that, shelling out $19 billion, you know, the guy spends – you know, most of the deal was was stock. So, I mean, does that mean that he thinks his stock is overvalued? He's willing to pay nineteen billion dollars, uh, you know, because he's paying twelve billion in stock. Uh, I don't think so. For me, um, you know, I watched the debacle when Facebook uh, listed, and as you know, the stock went way, way down, and then the trend reversed, and the buy actually came at twenty five. Uh, it went then went all the way up to 55. Then it started to correct again down to 45. Then a sell, then it reversed that. We had another buy signal. Um, you know, Facebook has more, let's say, FaceTime on the internet than than any other company, and you give it more information than pro- probably any other company. And uh, Zuckerman, you know, people said, oh, the guy doesn't know how to monetize, you know, his well, position. But he, even if he, he didn't, does, yeah. he, he yeah, he he definitely knows. Oh, he knows. And that's yeah. what it, yeah, and that's what that's what he's doing 
with WhatsApp. He's, he's, he's another target there. And if you think about, you know, I've told people, I reckon Facebook's going to 1,200, which everyone, what do you mean? It's 66, 67 or 68 or whatever the figure is right now. It's 69, 63. Um, yeah, so hold on. You know, Google was, was 50 and it's somewhere around 1,200. Yeah, listed uh, at 80 and now it's at 1,200. Yeah, let, let's yeah. look at this. WhatsApp was the second most popular app download for all of last year, according to App Annie, which is an analytics company. Facebook was number one. So now he's got number one and number two. Line was number six. That's uh, yeah. That's a Korea and Japan thing. Viber, which was yeah. just bought by Rakuten. And WeChat was number 10. Now, yesterday, Tencent yeah. sold off a lot, as did a lot of these uh, Asian, um, you know, messaging, instant messaging companies, because they thought that they'd be getting a lot more competition. But you might actually think that the sell-off in, say, Tencent would be a buying opportunity then. Well, I think so, because in the middle of last year, I identified that the Internet information providers are broken out to the upside. And everything from uh, 360 to TripAdvisor, you know, they'd all started these positive uptrends. And <laughs> they've gone up anything from 200 to 500%. They don't fit my peg ratios, which is what I normally try to apply for clients. But if they have a different portfolio and they want to be a bit more aggressive, they can be silver, gold, and they can be these information internet stocks. So they had been a bit beaten up, but I think um, people are starting to think that guys know how to target market advertising, and that's, that's where the value is coming in these stocks. Okay, Graham, uh, thanks very much. Uh, I like it better when you're in the studio, but uh, you're in Thailand, so we couldn't really do that. But uh, we'll have you back next time you're here in Hong Kong. Thank you. Graham Bibby, Chief Executive of Richmond Asset Management. I know this program did not go the way that I wanted it to today, but let's get it back on track now with Danny Hicks, editor of Sports Direct at AFP Sport. Uh, Danny, good morning to you. Good morning, Brian. If your head's spinning, mine's, uh, mine's taken off after all that ah, information I just, I, overload. I don't want the program to be all about individual stocks, but mm. um, you've got a very technical analyst with Sue, and then you've got Graham on a thin line from Phuket. Uh, you know, it's just... Uh, uh, I'm some... just a simple sports journalist. Yeah, so let's, well, anyway. Uh, let's get like it back say, in layman's terms, show, shows don't, don't always go. <laughs> the way you want or expect them to. But yeah, FIFA this week uh, giving a reprieve to uh, to the, what is that, the Curitiba Stadium. Indeed. The furthest behind schedule. We're looking at, uh, we're moving past the Olympics now and we're actually looking at, um, at football again. And uh, tell me what you think is the most interesting uh, thing that's happening now. Well, obviously, you know, the Olympics is on at the moment and the global sporting event, but the biggest global sporting event of this year, of any four-year spell, is, is the World Cup, the Football World Cup taking place in Brazil, obviously starting in June. And, uh, you know, it's been beset with problems, as, as these events seem to be at the moment. But Curitiba, which was a stadium which is still not finished, and we're less than four months away from the start of the, the tournament, uh, and was in jeopardy of being uh, pulled from the tournament and its, uh, its four scheduled matches played elsewhere, uh, got a reprieve 
from FIFA this week. The uh, FIFA Secretary-General, Jerome Valk, uh, uh, said that he was confident that they would finish on time, but it's still not going to be finished till May. And they've had to draft in for this stadium another 1,500 workers. They've had to, the local government has had to borrow $30 million, in, in, uh, $30 million in loans just to get the thing finished. And the original stadium cost of $60 million is now looking to be somewhere between... 180 and 200 million time it's finished and uh, it's it's left the question of uh, you know who's paying for all this and uh, what's going to happen to these stadiums uh, the 12 of them that are being built for the world cup when it finishes are they going to be extremely expensive white elephants this always seems to be the problems and you had protesters uh, all along saying you know hospitals are not being built because money's going to these stadia yeah, um, it's difficult to reconcile. It is. I mean, the the total cost of this World Cup, according to Bloomberg, is, or the redevelopment of the the twelve stadiums, is going to be something like fourteen point five billion dollars uh, cost to Brazil. Uh, a lot of these stadiums in Brazil, unlike uh, maybe in Europe, are municipally owned, so it's up to the local governments uh, and the central government to pick up the tab for this. FIFA is paying just one point four billion dollars to Brazil for them to host the uh, World Cup. And Brazil, and uh, presumably its business backers, sponsors, stakeholders, have to pick up the rest of the tab. Now, the, the, the question is, these stadiums after the World Cup, the municipally owned ones or the municipally built ones, are going to be handed over, it's thought, to private uh, investment companies, and they're going to try and turn a profit on them in the future. And the fear is in Brazil, you know, as I say protests against uh, infrastructure not being built, hospitals being built, and now the football fans are saying, well, after the World Cup, our ticket prices are going to go up because they're going to want to try and get their money back on these stadiums. And the fear is there's going to be empty stadiums and they're just going to fall into uh, disrepair. It's all a bit of a mess. Well, who benefits the most from this? Well, I think FIFA benefits because they'll probably get a great World Cup out of it. But, you know, FIFA is, uh, for all its... uh, uh, you know, sort of calm words above the surface. It, it, it reminds me of a swan because I think they're paddling furiously beneath the surface to make sure this World Cup is a success. It's not only Curitiba, but there's another stadium in the south of the country, Porto Alegre, which is in a bit of trouble. There's now rows about who builds the fan, uh, who pays for the fan park that FIFA uh, uh, insists on as part of the bid. They're even balking at uh, building a temporary facility to house the media there. Uh, they don't know who's going to pay for that. Um, you know, FIFA are paddling very, very furiously beneath the surface to try and push this through. And, and they want to make it a, a success. And, and let's face it, Brazil is the most successful football nation on the planet. And uh, it would be a crying shame if the World Cup didn't uh, uh, meet the, the kind of high standards of their team. Well, Brazil is football crazy, mm. but I suppose that 12 stadiums at this level, that's hard to grow into. It's hard to grow. And the problem with Brazil is such a vast country, isn't it? It's what, the third, fourth biggest country in the world? It, it, it's enormous and the distances to cover and to pull a stadium out at this stage just before the World Cup and rearrange the uh, matches elsewhere is going to open up a whole can of worms of teams, coaches, media wanting compensation about having to move their hotels, having to move their training bases. FIFA cannot afford that to happen but you know, with this Curitiba Stadium not due to be finished now till mid-May, just three or four weeks before the tournament starts, you know, it's still a bit up in the air. Okay, Danny, we'll let you go. Thank you very much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. And uh, that's Danny Hicks, editor of Sports Direct at AFP Sport. We'll just close out the program now with a brief look at markets. Uh, and it looks like a pretty strong day today. The Nikkei up 206 points, uh, 1.4%, 14,655. Good.
good feed in from Wall Street and also in Europe. Uh, the FTSE was up 16 points overnight, so a quarter of a percent higher. The CAC up about a third of a percent. We did see slightly lower numbers uh, in the DAX. In Australia, a good market today, too, two thirds of 1%. And in Seoul, the uh, Kospi there up more than 1%. Let you run out with this, and then we'll get the latest in the weather. Cold with cloudy periods today, mainly fine for much of the rest of the day. 16 degrees as the high. The outlook for tomorrow, the temperature rising. Yeah, this has Danny Giddings, just Paul Zimmerman written all over Back chat coming up with those two gentlemen in just a moment. But first, the news with Etienne Lamy Smith. The European Union has agreed to impose sanctions on those responsible for the mounting violence in the Ukraine. The decision was taken after dozens of people were killed in the capital, Kiev, on the bloodiest day the Ukraine has experienced since independence more than 20 years ago. An EU delegation is trying to persuade President Viktor Yanukovych to agree a roadmap to a peaceful solution. The BBC's Jamie Kumasari reports. After another day of bloodletting, there is a lot riding on these talks. The three EU foreign ministers have been shuttling between opposition leaders and President Yanukovych, trying to hammer out a peace deal that could see next year's election brought forward. But Kiev is a city awash with 